0: I've got to say, it was tempting to preach on the gospel today, mainly for the reason that I love saying, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. (laughs) But I'm not going to preach on the gospel today. I get to stumble over some other pretty interesting names in the course of talking about Job. Um, So in our readings from the Hebrew Gospels, uh, Hebrew Scriptures, I'm sorry, uh, we've been hearing little pieces from the book of Job. Uh, For the last month or so, and in our small informal gatherings that we've been having at nine o'clock over in the Don and Meeting Room to talk about and reflect on the uh, specifically the Hebrew Scripture reading of the day, you know, we've we've taken these pieces of Job and we've been trying to put them in some kind of context. You know, what can we get, if anything? from the book of Job that will help us to live fuller, more love-filled lives in Jackson Hole, 2021. And I don't believe that just because it's in the Bible that it is necessarily relevant today, but I also don't wanna simply dismiss it out of hand. And I don't wanna just ignore it either because it really is a strange and, and wonderful part of our Christian tradition, maybe more strange than wonderful, but worth exploring for that very reason. Before diving into Job, I want to thank the folks that have been showing up at 9 o'clock um, in the dining meeting room to, to have these discussions, to kind of chew on these Hebrew readings, because you all that have been there, you've helped me to think about Job. And uh, the book and the man, in new ways, sort of shed a new light on it for me. So today's thoughts don't just come from me; they come. Uh, they were inspired by those rich conversations uh, that we've been having among smart, caring people. So here's a quick synopsis of what happens to Job, leading up to. Today's reading of God speaking to him out of the whirlwind. Uh, first we hear about what a great guy Job was. He was blameless and he was upright. And he had a big, wonderf- wonderful family. He had it all. And the icing on the cake, he was rich. Job, did a, uh, Job apparently did everything right. And I suppose that we're supposed to think that because he did everything right, he was blessed. Quick cut to God and Satan having a little chat. They've settled in, and God says to Satan, Hey, what's happening? Where have you been? And Satan says, I've come from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it you know, just kind of checking out the situation. And God says, have you considered my man Job? There's no one like him on earth. He's a stand-up guy, blameless, and he respects me. And Satan says, why wouldn't he respect you? It's as if you've put up a wall around him, And sheltered him from all suffering and have given him everything that a person could possibly want. But look, says Satan, I'll bet that if you were to reverse his fortunes and mess with all that he has, he will curse you to your face. Now, God says a lot of things that puzzle me in the Hebrew scriptures. But what God says next to Satan is really baffling to me. God says, and this time I'm quoting from the translation verbatim, says to Satan, very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. Satan says, okay. And he goes off to wreak havoc on Job. And Satan doesn't touch Job, not directly but he definitely touches everything that Job holds dear. Everything that is important to Job is destroyed. All his livestock and his servants are killed by invaders from the north and from the south, and if that weren't enough, their remains were burned up by lightning from the west. And if that weren't enough, a great wind from the east blew a house down That was the house where all of Job's sons and daughters had gathered for a party. They all died in the rubble. It's coming at Job from every direction. Everything that Job loved was taken away from him. So he did the only thing that he could do. He went into mourning. And as was the custom in his day, he shaved his head, he tore his robe, and he fell to the ground. This I understand. This deep sadness, this despair at having lost everything you love. Now there are many things that people do in the Hebrew scriptures that puzzle me, but what Job does next I can barely understand. After he had lost everything, he fell on the ground and worshiped And here's his prayer. Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Now that's faith. That's pretty amazing. It almost doesn't seem human to me. But Satan and God aren't done with Job yet. God says, look at Job. Everything he held dear is gone, and yet he persists in his integrity. Satan says to God, skin for skin. In other words, you didn't let me touch him. He's escaped with his life, his body intact. If you reach out your hand now and touch him, I mean really strike him, he'll sing a different tune. Just watch. He'll curse you to your face, God. So for no reason that I can explain, and if anyone has an explanation, I'd love to hear it, at this point God says to Satan, very well, he is in your power, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. So everything that happens so far in this story, in this text that we have, it's recounted in just a few paragraphs at the beginning of the book. And I think that's fitting, because I think it matches up with our experience of how disaster sometimes happens in our lives. One minute, everything seems fine, and the next minute, everything in our world has been turned upside down. Not only that, but sometimes it just feels like disaster piles upon disaster, and it's coming at us from every direction, and there is no good explanation for any of it. Have you had this experience or an experience like it? I have. Have you been able to come up with the adequate explanation for why bad things happen to good people? To yourself, perhaps? Me neither. So when I was reading these uh, when I was reading about these meetings, right, these conversations that God and Satan were happening uh, were having this this back and forth and this toying with Job, the righteous person, I got angry with the story. This isn't the loving God that we profess to know and to worship as St. John's Episcopal Church. So I tried to picture, in my imagination, the setting of these conversations. Where did all this go on anyway? Well, I pictured God and Satan sitting in a drawing room somewhere with great windows overlooking the earth, maybe sitting in overstuffed easy chairs, smoking cigars and sipping brandy. They just seem so detached. So that's how the image of God and Satan came to me. It's probably not a very good image, I've got to admit, because it reflects my anger at the description of God playing chess with Satan, using Job, the righteous person, as their pawn. In one of our nine o'clock conversations, I asked, Where do you all see this game of chess happening? And someone said, I see it happening in Job's mind. Boom. There was a new way of looking at this story for me. Job sits in the ashes, everything he loves is gone, scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery, unable or unwilling to curse God for his calamity, and trying to figure out how did I get here? Of course, he needs an explanation. Course, he has a strong faith and a loving God. So, personal disaster, the need to understand, and faith don't necessarily reconcile here. But they are tangled together, as they are tangled together in our own lives. And Job is trying to see a pattern, come up with an answer where there may not be one. And still, he never loses his faith. So here we are with Job in the ashes, covered with sores. And there are still 40 pages and about 40 chapters to go in the book of Job. Now, his three, friend, his three good friends show up to join him, to console him, to comfort him. Good, we think. Good. Job shouldn't be alone in his mourning, in his time of deep grief. So they come and they sit in silence with him for seven days and seven nights, and they do the best they can, which is, I think, the best any of us can do when our friends are hurting. We sit with them. We are truly present with them, and we listen. And Job's friends listen as he tells them of his suffering. He tells them how deep his despair is. It's so deep that he wishes he had never been born. Then we're entering the longest section of Job's story, the part of the story that truly demands the patience of Job to suffer through the part of the story where Job's friends, who started off so well, so compassionate in their silent suffering with him, they blow it. Eliphaz the Themonite speaks up first. He tells Job that even though he doesn't see any good reason for Job's suffering, don't worry, God is just. Be patient, he tells him. Everything is going to work out in the end. He offers platitudes that I'm sure he thinks will be helpful. They are not helpful. I think there's a lesson for us here. No matter how good our intentions are, easy answers to others' suffering are rarely helpful. And Job's not buying it. He answers, don't tell me to be patient. He says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Besides, if I have sinned, shouldn't I be forgiven? Bildad the Shuite chimes in. How can you say these things, Job? If you only prayed a little bit harder, you'll see. Everything is gonna turn out okay. Again, not helpful. And this really makes Job mad. He shouts back at Bildad, I do not believe that God would listen to my voice. For God crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon God? Though I am innocent, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, God would prove me perverse. His third friend, Zafar the Namathite, doubles down on everything that the other two friends have already said. He says, you deserve everything you're getting, you just can't see the reason why. Exactly, says Job. (laughs) I cannot see the reason why everything that I love is gone and the three of you are full of beans. (laughs) So this conversation goes on for chapters and pages, and it, it turns into a heated argument. His friends have completely lost sight. Of Job's suffering and they won't let up on trying to explain the ways of God to him and Job stays strong in his integrity. He won't take the easy way out. He knows his own experience and he won't let his friends try to convince him otherwise. Now putting myself in Job's shoes, hopefully I wouldn't either. And I hope that I never follow the friend's lead and try to talk anybody out of their own experience. What right do Job's friends have to offer him easy answers to impossible questions? What right do I have? What right do any of us have? Now if we're unable to sit in the ashes with one another and be quiet and to suffer together, We do best by keeping our mouths shut. Compassion means suffering with, not offering advice. And that's how Job's friends who started out so well ended up so wrong. They stopped listening and couldn't stop talking. When we were discussing these readings from Job, I posed the question, How do you reconcile this problem of so much suffering in the world with our understanding of a God who loves us, of our own belovedness? Does any of it make any sense in your life? And someone in the room that day, a person who has suffered much recently, had a beautiful answer. She talked about the consolation that she found in God's creation how everything in the natural world fits together perfectly. The seasons change. There is birth and growth and maturity and death. And though there is no real explanation for any of it, it all seems so perfect. There seems to be an underlying plan and that's good enough for her. So in today's reading, God starts doing the talking and he's speaking directly to Job. God doesn't speak to Job about justice or suffering. And God certainly doesn't offer any apology or explanation at all. God gives Job a vision of the beauty, the sometimes terrible beauty, of the world that God created and continues to create and to uphold and to nurture. God gives Job a gift of vision, turning his view from his own suffering to the mystery of creation. It's as if God is telling Job, and if we have ears to listen, telling us that there is a plan We might not be able to think our way into it, but if we look closely, we can see it directly. It is all around us, and we're part of the plan. It's a description of a mystical experience, and I know that unless a person has had such an experience of being one with creation, it may be hard to swallow this as a justification for suffering in the world. We want explanations. And we want to give explanations and advice, thinking that they will somehow help. But somehow, all our explanations and advice just get in our way. And that's what I hear coming out of the whirlwind today. Be still and know that I am God. I've got this, I've got you. Be quiet and listen. Amen.